they'll be online. I appreciate that you put this on, online. My mother and my sisters and my daughter can, uh, can see this service and are with us. So I appreciate that, that you've made that possible and that uh, we get to be together. Whenever the elders call me and ask me if I'll, I'll fill in, Jack always prefaces it by saying, we haven't seen Sharon in a long time. Would you bring her up to visit with us? And while you're here, would you preach? Uh, it's always disheartening to us because we don't get to see Matthew and Janine. Uh, we always look forward to being with them. I was going to chide him because, because it's Mother's Day. This is at least the 48th Mother's Day sermon I've presented, and every preacher knows. Matthew knows this. Every preacher knows. It's always a, a, a quandary. It's always a difficulty on Mother's Day. Do, do I preach on mothers, or do I preach on children, obey your parents, or do I give, give the fathers and husbands a hard time, or do I just preach? And so I know I've, I've had that quandary for 48 times. I was going to chide Matthew for, for leaving on Mother's Day and leaving me with that decision. Years ago, as, as, a, as you know, probably 40 years, uh, I had been a firefighter and a preacher, and I wrote an essay on motherhood. And you will see this once in a while on the internet, but, but I wanted to share that with you. I've had quite a, quite a vantage point in, in um, more than 40 years of preaching and viewing the nature of motherhood, even if I am an outsider. I've also been a firefighter and an EMT for more than half that time. I've been involved in some of the most intimate moments in some very dear and remarkable women. I've seen the transformation of teenage girls who, because of a bad decision and often with the wrong guy, suddenly become not just a woman, but a mother in a very difficult lifestyle change. I've seen mothers take up residence in motel rooms, sleep on fold-out couch, even cars, so they could be near the school, the hospital, or the prison. I've often witnessed the unconditional love their irrational care, or the tender touch of a mother's hand. The explanation given to me, often through tears, that's my child. I've seen toughened cops practically bowled over by 102 pounds of determined motherhood and given the only password, my children. I've seen my grandmother at her son's grave, through tears, mutter, it's not supposed to be this way. I know she wasn't denying death its prey, only the one chosen in her stead. I've seen mothers who care nothing about baseball, soccer, band, or gymnastics, but they're there at every game, every meet, every recital. She'll be driving through the neighborhood to collect bottles, sell candy bars, or pizza kits. You may see them standing on the porch dressed in slippers and a housecoat, watching the bus stop the steam rising off the cup of coffee clutched in her hand. I've been in the room when few wanted to enter, and none other would have without a sterile mask, rubber gloves. But there she is, unprotected, holding the hand, mopping the brow, wetting the lips. It's not that she is immune to the disease. She would take it on herself if it would leave her child alone. I've firsthand seen that exchange of trust, the briefest look as she hands you the care of what is dearer to her 
than her own life. And you know that the only reason you were given such a trust is because she believed that you had some ability beyond her will to heal her own child. I've heard them say when they're talking to each other, I never knew I could love someone so much. I've been watching. It's pretty emotional stuff. I know that John, the apostle, is right. God is love. I take that to mean that God must have put the best that he has and that he is in a mother's heart. Isn't it remarkable that we get to see the essential nature of God in the first person that we meet in this life? Well, a happy Mother's Day. I've been criticized from time to time on Mother's Day. I, I remember being criticized after one Mother's Day sermon, and, some, and one of the ladies talked to me afterwards and said, you know, everybody doesn't have a wonderful mother like you do. But that notwithstanding, if the last good decision your mother made was to give you life, we are indebted. We are grateful to her because we get to have you. We're grateful that she made that decision to give you life, and we thank God for her. If you happen to be here with your mother, you're wonderfully blessed. If you happen to be here because uh, with all of your children, you're wonderfully blessed. Not all of us can do that. We're grateful that we have that some of them, some of you have that opportunity, and uh, we're grateful that we get to share this time with you today. I've solved the quandary of what to preach on Mother's Day by just deciding I'm going to preach what I really want to preach at Traverse City. I've been dying to preach this lesson here at Traverse City. I think it's a wonderful lesson on heaven, and I love to preach on heaven. I was preaching at a congregation in Westland once, and, and Tim, that reminded me when you said, there's one more verse here. I was preaching in Westland one Sunday, and, and uh, I was preaching, and before the lesson, they sang, When We All Get to Heaven, or a, a song about heaven. I'll be somewhere listening. And I, when I got up to preach, I said, I love being with a people that love to sing about heaven. They got up and sung another verse of it. And so, so uh, uh, we got another verse today about heaven. Heaven is our hope. That's the hope that was in it. In Ephesians chapter 4, when he talks about those seven unities, it says we have one hope, that hope that is within us. And that's the hope. That's the hope that we will be forever in eternity with the creator, ever in eternity with the life force of this universe. If I was speaking to the most skeptical among us, if I was speaking to the most skeptical atheist, I would have to get him to agree, first of all, there's a life force on this planet. There's something that makes a difference on this planet. There's a life force in all of, in all of you and everybody here. There's a life force. And, and is it beyond the realm of possibility that great life force that we could be with him for eternity? And heaven is described in, in many places, but in, in Revelation it describes heaven as a place where there's no tears, there's no toil, there's sun won't be beating down on us anymore for the lamb is the light there. The glory of God illuminates and we're in his presence, the presence of all goodness. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Right there is the theme of the Bible. God separated the light from the darkness. There's a continual battle between good and evil, between dark and light. But one day God will separate once and for all the light. And you have opportunity to ever dwell in the presence of that light. The reason there's no sun in heaven is because he is the light there. And you have the opportunity of being in the presence of that love, in the presence of that light. And I love to preach about that. Someday before I'm finished preaching, I hope that some congregation will invite me to come and start preaching Sunday morning, early Sunday morning. I want to preach all day long, all day long. You don't have to stay here. You don't have to listen to the whole thing, but I want to preach all day long until midnight, and I'm going to start in Revelation and go through that whole book. I love that book. The revelation is, the, the, the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. And you re recognize that word in our English language. Whenever there's a, some kind of a disaster, you'll hear the news media say, oh, it's an apocalyptic event, or it's an apocalypse. To them, it's a bad thing, but that's not the way we feel about it. To us, it's the revelation of glory. That's what it means, the revelation of Jesus. And he is our glory. He is where we're hid. He is our righteousness. And we are hid in him. And when his glory is revealed, that's when our glory is revealed. So as we speak about Revelation, and, and Will just read this wonderful, wonderful verse. In heaven they sing a new song. I asked him yesterday, hey, can you sing the new song? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. You need, we're, we need too many strong parts there for that. And it's hard. It's a difficult song. They sing in heaven a new song. You know that song. And of Moses and the Lamb. And it's a wonderful song. But you do have to have all four parts. And they have to be real strong. Because they all sing at different points. But we love to sing about heaven. But it just reminds us in heaven they sing a song that is so wonderful. That is beyond our physical capability to sing it. It is beyond the capability of flesh and blood to sing that song. But those who are redeemed. Those who are in the blood of Christ, who have washed their robes and made them clean, those who stand with God and in his presence will be able to sing this new song. And when you're there, you will be part of that wonderful chorus, that chorus that is joined with angels. It'll be an amazing thing. It'll be, and, and, and one of my sisters used to say, one of my sisters in Christ used to say, well, is this going to be, you know, is it just going to be like the song leader gets up there? Okay, we're going to sing page 453. Tim's going to get up and sing a few songs, and Jack's going to get up and lead a few songs. Is that what it? No, no, no. Have you ever been so happy? Have you ever been so overwhelmed with, with wonder and joy that you just, just wanted to express it some way? If you're musical by nature, that's probably what would happen. You would just burst into a song. <laughs> one day I was, there's a, uh, one of the brothers in Mount Morris is, uh, is also serves on the credit union boards that I've served on. And, and uh, we were at a golf outing and, and Chuck loves to play golf. He just loves golf. And it was raining. It was just raining and, and cold and miserable. And as we got out there to, to go to the first tee, I walked up behind him and just started singing. 
if the skies above you are gray. <laughs> That's what James says, isn't it? Let somebody, if you're, if you're, you need to sing. If you're not happy, start singing. That'll make you happy. Well, in heaven, they sing a new song of Moses and the Lamb. And in this text right here in Revelation 5, we have this text where, where all the letters to the churches have been written, all the, the greetings to the seven churches. John has seen Jesus walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And you remember my sermon about lamps and candles. He's not walking in candles. He's walking in lamps. We are the lamp. Later on, he says, the churches, that's the seven churches that he's walking in the midst of. Where else would Jesus be? When Jesus left, he said, if two or more are gathered together in my name, there will I be in their midst. Of course he's going to be walking in the midst of the churches, in the midst of those congregations. And so he who holds the seven stars in his hand, he who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is walking in the midst of these, these congregations, just as he's walking in our midst today. And, and as, he, as he, John has seen the glory of Jesus, he's seen the glory of God, he's seen all the wonderful things there, the letters to the churches are written, and now we come in Revelation 5, we come to a scroll, and really it's a scroll of judgment. The Romans had mistreated, the Jews had mistreated the Christians. Their property had been taken. Sometimes their lives had been taken unfairly and unjustly. Their property had been taken. They'd been cast out. They'd been beaten. They'd been thrown out. They'd been stoned. All kinds of horrible things had happened to the Christians. And, and there's a scroll of judgment on those who bring such harshness upon the Lord's church. The Lord takes it very personal when you bring harm to his bride just as you would take it personal if somebody harmed your bride, as you would defend her, the Lord does that also. Remember Saul on the road to Tarsus? In the verses in Acts chapter 9, it says in the verses before then, and Saul, Saul raised havoc in all the churches. And he went to Damascus with letters of authority from the high priest that if he found anybody walking in the way, that's what they called the church. So if they found anybody following Christ... Now, now, just think about that. There's another sermon I can't wait to preach here. What does it mean to be following Christ? Here's somebody that, that is going the second mile, that's forgiving those as they've been forgiven, that loves like the Lord loves them. Here's somebody that, 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 that treats other people the way they would want to be treated. Here's somebody following Christ, doing good in the world, and they're persecuting them for that. So there's going to be a great havoc. And anyway, Saul was doing that. If he found anybody going the second mile, treating other people better than they treat themselves. If they found anybody like the Good Samaritan stopping and helping somebody that nobody else would help and taking care of them, if he found anybody doing good, he was supposed to arrest them and, and, and make them come to Damascus and pay the fine. <laughs> you know that's not true, is it? They're not come to pay the fine. Stephen didn't have to just pay a fine for being a Christian. Stephen was stoned to death, and that's what Saul wanted to do with the rest of our brothers and sisters who had been following Christ. So Saul was going everywhere, raising havoc in the churches, and he sees Jesus in the form of a bright light in the middle of the day. And remember the words of Jesus, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
When you persecute the Lord's church, when you hurt his bride, he takes it very personal. So there's a scroll of judgment upon those who had hurt the bride of Christ. And nobody is worthy to open that scroll. The angels can't open it, so they look all through heaven. There's not one angel that can open that is worthy to open the seals of that because angels haven't been tempted as men and women have on this earth have been tempted. They look all through the earth. And there is not one person on earth who has not sinned, and so none of them are worthy to open the scroll. And John weeps much because he's not worthy to open the scrolls. This disciple whom Jesus loved, this disciple who was, was reclined at the dinner table right next to Jesus, this disciple whom Jesus washed his feet, this disciple who, who saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah standing together in bright garments and heard the voice of God said, This is my beloved son, hear ye him. This John says, I wept much because nobody could open this scroll of judgment. But then somebody said to me, don't weep. The lion of Judah, of the tribe, this, this Jesus has overcome. The lamb has overcome and he is worthy to open the scroll. Because Jesus was tempted as all, in all manners just as we are tempted. Because he lived in one of these bodies made of flesh and still was sinless. Because he was victorious, obedient and victorious even to death on the cross. He overcame and he is worthy to open the scroll. So there's these seven seals that are begin to be opened in, in heaven. And as they open these seals, every one of these seals brings judgment upon those who have rebelled against the word of God. They're not judgments upon Christians. And, and as my father once wisely told my, my grandmother, his mother, she was reading in Revelation in the church where she went. They kept her scared about all this. And as my father wisely said, there's nothing in that book that you should be scared of. It's true. This book wasn't written to scare you. It was written to tell you of the love of God and to provide you a way of escape that the rest of the world will have to bear. To provide you an avenue to heaven. Jesus said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going there, I'm preparing a way. And when, when they ask them, well, we don't really know. We don't, you've lost us. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Remember what Jesus said. I am. The way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus says. So Jesus is our way. He's our gate. He's that gate, the, the gate of heaven, the, the pearl of great price. He is the way, the truth, and the light. He is our righteousness. He is our clothing. He's clothed us in a robe of righteousness, his own righteousness. And I know there's not a Christian alive that thinks that they deserve that. He did it because of who he is, not because of who we are. In Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness. What's the path of righteousness? Jesus. He leads me in path of, paths of righteousness for his name's sake, because of what his name, the I am that I am, because of who he is, not because of who we are. So we come back to Revelation. 
We've got this passage. They sing in heaven a new song. Worthy art thou. He's worthy to take the scroll or the book and to open the seals thereof. He is worthy for, and here's why. Because he was slain and he did purchase unto God Every one of us who are Christians, every one of us who have made that confession that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, every one of us who have been buried and immersed in His mercy and, and, and raised to walk in newness of life by the power of God, every one of us know He purchased us unto God by His blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So out of all these nations, so here's this, here's this wonderful passage that will remind us. As we just gathered around the Lord's table, we were sharing a communion with people of all tribes and all nations and all ages. We gathered around the table with the friends that, that George and Greg have made in Ghana, with my friends in, in, in Obong, Natuk, Nigeria. We gathered around with friends who have been gone. We gathered around with people who are, are passed away, but we're together at this table. This is what we have in common. We gather at this common thing that we are washed in the blood of Christ, that we stand in his body, his bride, out of every nation and every tribe. Well, we go to the next slide here. Now we'll skip that one too. We'll go to chapter 7. As we move on through Revelation, we'll go to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, they open the seal, and there's this one seal. Before he opens that seal, there's a great silence in heaven. And the command is, and the, and, and the wind stops and everything, hold the winds, make sure nothing blows. We're going to seal all of the children of God. And so by seal, in other words, he, he, he's, he's, he's going to give them a a seal on their foreheads. Remember in some places it talks about this. He's going to give them a seal on their foreheads. This is not literal. This is figurative. In other words, he is sealing the tribes of God. And, and you know the church is described as the true Israel, spiritual Israel. And so out of every tribe, he, he, a thousand out of every tribe. There's 12 tribes in old Israel. There's 12 tribes out of every one. Uh, there's a thousand, and so there's so there's, there's 12,000, so there's 144, 12 times 12, 144,000 sealed. Now, I believe this to mean, and, and the Bible is consistent in this. There are some people that say, oh, that just means the saved out of, out of old Israel, out of, the, out of what we would refer to as the Old Testament. That just means the people that are saved out of the Old Testament, just 144,000. That's inconsistent with the word of God. <laughs> that's not that's not consistent with any place else in the word of God. This is all of Israel. This is you. This is the church saved of all the nations of all the ages. They're all there. And so Revelation takes a picture and then it takes another picture and then it takes another picture. So we have all these word pictures. We started out with a word picture of Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands holding seven stars in his hand. That's a word picture. And, but they all represent the same thing. And here we come to this place where, where, we, where this, this picture is of all the same. But if you don't believe me, if you don't buy that, look at the next verse. After these things I saw, after the 104, that's another thing I've had people say, well, I'm not going to try too hard because I know I'm, there's not room for me. There's only 144,000 people. There won't be room for me in heaven. 
Don't let anybody tell you that. That's not true. That is not consistent with the Bible. That is nothing can be true or right about that. And you've probably seen a couple guys riding around your neighborhood in bicycles that try to sell you that story, but it's not true. If you don't believe me, read the rest of your Bible, and here's, the, here's one part. The context of this, after these things, after that 144,000, I saw and behold a great multitude. Now remember, 3,000 were baptized on the day of Pentecost, and a few days later, the number came to 5,000 men, and then it says, after that, there's just a great there's just a multitude. <laughs> And the, and, the, and the Lord was adding to the church every day, and then the disciples began to multiply. And, and so there's a multitude. Well, this is a great multitude. After this, I see a great multitude, which no man can number. It's so great that no man could number it. It's kind of like sand on the seashore or looking up into heaven and seeing all those stars. Nobody can number that. Didn't somebody hear a promise once that that's how his descendants would be numbered? That's what God said to Abraham. The stars of the heaven, the sand on the seashore, if you can count those individual grains of sand, a great multitude which no man could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The Lamb is the victorious one, arrayed in white robes and palms in their hands. Remember that last Sunday that Jesus comes into Jerusalem? As he's coming into Jerusalem, those that welcomed him uh, cried, Hosanna, which means save us, Lord, save us, Hosanna. And they laid down their, they took off their garments and laid them in the street and they cut palm leaves down and cut the palm leaves so that his donkey could ride on, on wouldn't have to ride on the pavement, but rather he'd be on this carpet. So they have palms in their hands and they cry with a great voice. It's another way of saying they sing a new song. They cry with a great voice saying salvation unto our God who sitteth on the throne and unto the Lamb. The angel that's with John says, these that are arrayed in white robes, who are they? Who are they? Now, this is a great answer. It probably won't work for you tomorrow in school. But if you don't know the answer to the question, especially in heaven, John has a great way of answering. Who are these? And John says, I don't know, but you know. <laughs> all of this is a mystery to John. It's all being revealed to him. And so he says, you know. And so the angel explains to him, in case you don't believe me, here is what the angel says. These are they. This great number from every tribe, from every tongue, from every age, this great number of people that no man could number, these are they that came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What's the one thing that everybody that is in the Lord's church, everybody in the Lord's church, what's the one thing they have in common? They are washed in the blood of the Lamb. They have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Their sins are washed away because of Jesus Christ. And nobody, nobody in the church is in the church without that. In Ephesians chapter 5, when the Lord is talking about his bride, in Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul writes, 
He loved him. He loved his bride, and he gave himself up for her, that he might present her to himself as a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle. Literally, the groom gave his life that the bride may live. If the Lord added you to the church, and if you obeyed the gospel, that's who adds you to the church. <laughs> that's one of the most significant verses in scripture to me. In Acts chapter 2, it says that 3,000 were baptized in that day, and the Lord added to the church day by day, such as should be saved. Rodney one time asked me, almost 50 years ago, Rodney asked me, who added them to the church? You know this story. You've heard me tell this story before. I said, well, it says right here, the Lord added them to the church. So they didn't take a vote. <laughs> they weren't added by men. They weren't added in because they were voted in. And all of my resistance crumbled. The Lord adds you to the church. If you do the same thing in the same way for the same reason, won't he add you to the same church? So, so here's this great number. Here's the church. This, what John sees is the church redeemed. He sees her all in white and glorious you're part of that number. If you've obeyed the gospel, if you are in Jesus Christ, you're part of that number that he sees. And somebody says, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says they came out of the great tribulation. And everybody has this wrong idea that there's going to be, at the end of time, there's going to be a warning. You'll know it's going to be the end of time because things are going to get really difficult in the last seven years. Let me ask you about your life. I don't know about yours, but I can tell you about mine. Is it going to get more difficult than now? This is the great tribulation. Life is the great tribulation. Life is the seven years of tribulation. It's not a warning. It's not going to be a warning before the Lord comes back. No man knows, not even the Son, only the Father. These are they who came out of life, and in spite of life, in spite of all the difficulties of life, they have washed their robes. Notice the shibboleth. They are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Jesus leaves his disciples, and before he leaves, he says, All authority on heaven and earth hath been given unto me. Therefore, go into all the world and make disciples. Of who? Of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the close of the age. And that's what they did. They went into all the world and taught the gospel. They went into all the world and taught. And these are they. These are they that they taught. These are the ones that obeyed the gospel. There's all kinds of this is that statements in the Bible. Jesus in, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus picks up the scroll. Remember, he goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he picks up the scroll, and he opens up in Isaiah where it is written concerning him. <laughs> it's all about him. Wherever he wrote, wherever he opened up, he found a scripture concerning him, and he opens up that scripture, and it starts out, the spirit of this Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the poor, to pro proclaim release unto the captives, the acceptable year of the Lord. That's one of our favorites, isn't it, Tim? The acceptable year of the Lord. This is the year of Jubilee. And Jesus rolls the scroll back up, hands it back to the attendant, and says to those assembled, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This that Isaiah wrote, this, Jesus, is that. When the eunuch is riding along, the Ethiopian is riding along in his chariot, and Philip comes up and joins him in the chariot, and he asks Philip, who's this? He's reading from Isaiah. He's reading about somebody like a lamb before it shears, doesn't say a word, and, and in his humility, his justice is taken from him. Who's he talking about? Philip says, Jesus is that. This that Isaiah wrote about, he's talking about Jesus. This is that. And this scripture here, these are they. The angel is saying to him, these are they. When Daniel sees in Nebuchadnezzar's vision, he sees a little stone that is cut from the without hands, and it becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. This is that. This is that great stone that fills the whole earth. When Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul writes about the bride of Christ coming down out of heaven adorned, this is that bride. In Revelation, and he says the same, John says he sees the same thing. This beautiful bride coming out of heaven adorned as her husband. This is that. This church, that's what the church is. And John sees a vision. He's writing back to a church under persecution. He's writing back to a church under difficulty. He's writing into a church, writing back to congregations under great stress. And he reminds them. You already have salvation in heaven. Your place is already reserved. Jesus goes there to prepare a place for you. He has made a way for you. He's reminding them that no matter what this world comes to bring, and Paul would, would say to the Romans, you know, when I consider how hard this life is, I reckon that it's not to be compared with the weight of glory which we will see in the hereafter. I know that all, everything we go through doesn't, doesn't hold a candle candle to those things which we are going to see. We look at this passage, and I hope you see it as you read through Revelation. You're getting to see, you're, you're getting to see the glory of Jesus revealed. And what's the glory of Jesus? Not just that he was victorious over the tomb, not just that he was victorious over sin. That's all glorious. That is, and, and God is glorified in that. But the glory of Jesus is this wonderful bride that he has purchased. He has purchased out of every nation and every tribe and made them to be a kingdom of priests. And he's caused us to walk, to leave the darkness, called us out of darkness and caused us to walk in his marvelous light. This is that. What John sees, these are they. These are they who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. When we're baptized, we identify with the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We die to sin and we're buried momentarily in water just as Christ was buried in the tomb, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus was raised from the tomb by the power of God, the apostles stressed this over and over in several different places. That same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave rise, raises you up to walk in newness of life. That same power is working in your life and providing you a way to heaven. As we stand to sing this song, you have an opportunity to respond to that invitation. You don't want to miss heaven, and there's no reason you should. Come, 
all ye who will come. Come. The bride, that's the church, says come. Every member of the church says, there's a way for you. There was a way for me and the way is the same for you. Come. Every member of the Lord's church says come. And the spirit, that's the word of God, says come. Come unto me, ye that are weary and heavy laden. Come, the Lord says. Come, would you, as we stand and sing this song.